Hey, good morning, everybody. We're going to go ahead and get started. How's everybody doing today? Good? Everybody got coffee, bagels, everything you need? Very good. All right, my name is Jason Jackson. I'm one of the pastors here at New Life Downtown, and I am so glad you're here. Thanks for uh, those of you who are back for a second week. Um, is that still kind of, kind of loud? Is it, is it, it's a buzz? All right, let me see if we can take care of that real quick. How's that? Is that any better? Is that a little bit better? Oh, is it coming from this? Is that good? All right, how's the volume on the mic now? Needs to be, needs to be higher or it's good? Okay, all right, sweet. All right, <laughs> so let's start again. <laughs> it needs to be higher. Okay. <laughs> all right, how's that? Good? We're good to go? It's not too loud? Okay. All right. <laughs> Once again, my name is Jason Jackson. So glad you're here. For those of you who were here last week and our first conversation, uh, thanks for coming back. For those of you who didn't make it last week, hope you got a chance to listen to the podcast and uh, were able to kind of uh, join in in that conversation uh, and be able to kind of uh, listen in a little bit from there. Uh, this morning, I just want to tell you, uh, make a couple announcements, and then we'll, uh, we'll dive in. It feels like I'm getting a lot of feedback, but is that just my, it's just me? Okay, then I'll, I'll pretend to not hear my own voice uh, and, and, and go from there. Uh, I came on staff here at New Life Downtown about nine or ten months ago. My wife is with us here today. Uh, this is Sarah there in the back. She managed to get all three of our children here safely again yet another morning. Uh, all by herself. Normally, we, uh, a lot of the staff get here pretty early in the morning, many of us at 7 o'clock on Sunday mornings, and so she gets the joy of wrangling three small, three little girls. We have three girls, eight, five, and three, um, so she gets the joy of making sure that they all make it down here uh, on Sunday mornings. Um, this uh, Sunday school is, uh, for those of you who are not familiar kind of with our Sunday school format, we re- usually run Sunday school for about 10 to 14 weeks in the fall, 10 to 14 weeks in the spring. Uh, and we've tried to cover a variety of different topics along the way, things to talk about and discuss and um, be able to wrestle through kind of uh, as a church and, and community together. And as we were thinking through kind of this particular fall, one of the things that kept coming up in our conversations was, this, was the topic of singleness, uh, recognizing that so many times in the context of the church, um, whether it's New Life Downtown or any other church, the, it seems like the volume is raised really high in re- things related to family ministry. Um, so that we, we turn up the volume on kids' ministry, turn up the volume on student ministry. Uh, when things related to uh, premarital or marital kinds of things, uh, there, there tends to be a lot of that kind of activity in and around the church. Uh, and yet, uh, the church is made up of people who are also not married. Uh, the church is made up of other people uh, than just uh, people who are married with kids. And so we wanted to make sure, kind of in the context of the discussions around New Life Downtown, that we were having conversations about singleness uh, and recognizing that you all are a huge part of our community, uh, a huge part of our life together, and a valuable and important and significant part of the church. Uh, Amber, last week when she was talking, said that sometimes it can feel in the context of church life that singles are second-class citizens, 
uh, and she cast sort of a vision at the end of our time together last week of saying, what if, what if that were not true at New Life Downtown? Uh, what if New Life Downtown was the kind of church uh, where singles, along with marrieds and, un, uh, and, and children and students, all felt celebrated, encouraged, and supported uh, in the place that they find themselves in? Uh, and recognizing that if that's going to be the case, then these are really, really important conversations uh, to be able to have conversations around this topic. Uh, not because singleness is the only thing about any of us in the room who are single, nor is it the most important thing about anybody who's single in the room, right? The most important thing about all of us, regardless of our marital status, is the fact that we've been created in God's image, that we've been rescued and redeemed by Jesus Christ, that we've been filled with the Holy Spirit, called together as a family, and commissioned to minister the gospel into the world. And that's true for all of us in every stage of our lives. And yet, we also want to say, but there are things that we just need to talk about. We need to talk about what it's like to be uh, a single person, what it's like to be a married person, uh, what it's like to parent, what it's like to uh, have all of these different things, and to particularly frame them from a Christian perspective. So that's the hope of these conversations, uh, is to be able to set aside some time to talk and discuss around these ideas. Um, so we're doing three weeks on the Sunday School last week, Amber Ayers shared on singleness in the Bible. Today I'm going to attempt to talk about singleness in church history and theology. Um, so kind of talking about things that the church has kind of talked about over the span of, you know, 2,000 years or so. Um, <laughs> and then next week, Lisa Anderson from Focus on the Family will be with us to talk about singleness in the church today um, and to say, really, what does it mean for a church to be a place where singles feel that sense of uh, being celebrated and welcomed and encouraged and embraced and invited into the very life and fabric of the church? Uh, and not in any way felt like pushed to the margins uh, or isolated in, in some capacity. Uh, but next Saturday, also, Lisa's going to be doing an event for us up at New Life North called Faith in the Single Life. Um, that's going to be talking a little bit more particularly about some of the practicalities uh, around singleness and dating, uh, as well as sharing a little bit more of her own story. Uh, Lisa is, I think, in her 40s now, someone who always desired to be married, um, but hasn't gotten married. And so talking about some of those uh, aspects of singleness as well, of trusting God in unexpected places and with unexpected stories, um, and knowing that there is uh, some of those things as well. So if you are interested in attending that, you can sign up online at newlifechurch.org. It's 15 bucks for the day. It starts at 9, ends at 3. There'll be catered lunch and coffee all day long. Um, so uh, we'd love for you to come and participate in that. And it's not, uh, it's not restricted to just people at New Life or at New Life Downtown. Uh, it's open to anybody. So if you have friends, family, coworkers, neighbors, who you think would, it would be helpful for them to engage in those conversations as well, uh, we'd hope for you, uh, hope, we encourage you to ask them to join us. Uh, but overall, there's a couple of things that we um, are trying really hard uh, to make sure we try to hold on to kind of in the midst of these conversations. Uh, one of them is that as we've talked about this, we want to recognize throughout our, throughout our conversations the diversity of singleness. That oftentimes uh, the church, when it does talk about singleness, simply throws like a blanket over top of it um, as if everyone's experience with singleness is the same. Um, but as you all know, that's not the case. Uh, there are some folks in the room who may be voluntarily single, 
uh, who may have said, hey, out of faithfulness to Christ, I am choosing to be single for for the sake of the kingdom for my entire life. There are other people in the room who may say, hey, I'm I'm single, uh, but the desire of my heart is to be married. Uh, And it hasn't happened yet or it hasn't happened for a long time. There are other folks in the room who find uh, themselves uh, single because of a death, who've lost a spouse. Um, There are others who are single due to divorce and recognizing what happens uh, and and when a a marriage uh, is, when a separation and divorce happens, that's a unique kind of singleness, a unique experience. Uh, And then there are folks who, in the context of being either widowed or divorced, have kids. Uh, And those folks have kids at various ages. And so we can't take a blanket and just throw it over top of singleness and say, hey, all of this is just the same. Um, There are some things that are common, but there are a lot of things that are really different and really unique. And so we're hoping in the context of the conversations to make sure that uh, we're addressing all of those things. Um, And part of that is you helping us as well. Because uh, each of you are bringing your own perspective and your own story of singleness into the conversation, which is so incredibly helpful uh, for us to be able to hear from one another. Um, the second thing that we've uh, wanted to do is we wanted to try to address both the opportunities and the challenges of singleness. I know sometimes when churches talk about singleness, they simply talk about it as a problem to be solved, right? That singleness in some way is not something to be celebrated, to encourage or to be embraced in any way, it's simply a sign that something has gone wrong, either with you or in your approach to dating. Um, And therefore, we'll try to give you all the tools that you need so that you can get out of singleness. Uh, And that that may be some people's desire, and I think some of those conversations are really helpful to talk about the practicalities of dating and those kinds of things. And yet again, I think there's more to singleness than that. There's a whole lot more. The scriptures and church history say that there is substantially more to singleness uh, than simply kind of a negative perspective that the church oftentimes brings into the conversations. Um, So we want to uh, hopefully in the midst of the conversations also try to avoid maybe some of the mistakes of churches uh, who have helped us in conversations or maybe churches that you have been at. uh, Knowing oftentimes when churches do try to tackle this, we fumble. Um, and it, you know, can get a little bit weird or messy or, uh, things can be said that are really hurtful. I think last week after the conversation, uh, or during the conversation after I heard from many of you, the kinds of things that have been said to you personally, uh, about your singleness and your experience of it. Um, and some of which, uh, were quite frankly appalling, um, and heartbreaking to hear that anyone would say those kinds of things to anybody else uh, about the season of life that they find themselves in. And so our hope is to avoid those things um, as, we're, as we're talking through and making sure that we're looking at everything from all these kind of angles. Uh, and then we wanna provide a diverse set of voices. Um, so there's a particular reason why there's not one person doing all three weeks. Um, because we know that all of us kind of have our own view. uh, And Lisa and Amber and I will agree on some things and disagree on other things. We'll say things similarly, we'll say things different. We'll have a different perspective, a different point of view. And I think that's healthy for church dialogue um, to be able to say, hey, what what do you think about this? What's your experience? And to be able to kind of bring multiple voices to the table. 
And then again, your voices matter in the middle of all that too. So hopefully you got to feel last week that we want this to be a dialogical uh, environment, that it's not simply people who are talking to you, um, but a conversation with one another uh, around this topic. Because I, I do honestly believe that if New Life Downtown is going to be the kind of place um, that Amber was talking about last week, uh, where singles of all varieties feel welcomed and loved and appreciated and accepted and celebrated and encouraged in their stage and season of life, whatever, however we might define that, that that's going to take a lot of listening on our parts um, to know what it is uh, that would help you to feel all of those things um, and to be able to say, hey, we want to lend our strength, our voice, our resources, our gifts to the church and to the conversation. Um, I think it's only in that environment that we actually kind of get to those places. Uh, so as we go along, I hope you uh, feel free to continue to give us uh, sort of all of those perspectives. Uh, just a, a real quick um, sidebar really quick on, on my own kind of experience with singleness is, you know, I'm married. We've been married for uh, going on 13 years uh, next month. Um, I got married at the age of 26. Um, so I, my season of singleness was rather short um, in comparison to many. Um, it was an interesting time for me, though, I could say. For, I became a youth pastor at the age of 19. Um, so at the church that I was at, I felt that as a single person, that my, that my single life and my dating life were on a different kind of display um, than maybe other people were at that time period. I think just kind of the stage presence and then having lots of students and college students and volunteers um, kind of in the orbit all of the time. Uh, in fact, when Sarah and I started dating, there was a conversation about when she would sit with me at church. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, knowing that as soon as we started to sit together, the conversations that she would experience would change um, in the midst of all of that. But I, I remember having kind of this mixed experience of life in the church. Uh, on the one hand, there were Sundays that I hated being in the lobby. Um, it just seemed that every conversation revolved around whether or not I was dating, who I was dating, how it was going, and if I wasn't dating, I want to introduce you to so-and-so. <laughs> and so, and that creates, as a, as, a, as a pastor on staff, creates all sorts of strange, like, <laughs> challenges. It's like, how do you have a conversation with somebody who you're, somebody, somebody in the church is trying to set you up with somebody else in the church, and how do you have that conversation if that's not a conversation you want to be a part of? <laughs> and, and still, like, pastor in the middle of all of that. So there were days like that being at church seemed really difficult, uh, and particularly because it seemed to be that for some people that was the only conversation they wanted to have. And there were other things that I wanted to talk about. There were substantially other things that I, that I cared about, that I was passionate about, that I was giving my life to, um, that was part of my life, but it wasn't my whole life. At the same time, there were others in the church, particularly a family in the church named, uh, that were ten, they were 10 years older than me, they were married, um, and they had a couple of little kids. Uh, and they invited uh, myself, uh, another single gentleman who was about 10 years older than me, uh, and a woman who was about 20 to 25 years older than me, uh, who was divorced with grown kids, uh, into their home on a consistent basis. 
And oftentimes, other married couples or other families would come and join in uh, around the table, or particularly around the television as we were watching Alias and Survivor and, uh, and Lost and having all sorts of deep theological conversations about Lost, I promise. <laughs> And in the, this context, I found uh, probably some of the most beautiful community that I've ever experienced. Uh, and for them, my singleness was a part of the conversation, but it wasn't everything. And where oftentimes we feel kind of isolated into groups that are solely related to singles, uh, they invited me into their family and into their home, uh, which ended up being, for me, one of the most transformational things I ever experienced. Um, as, uh, as a young person, I, I grew up in a highly dysfunctional home. Uh, my parents were divorced uh, when I was in high school. Uh, and so I had, and I didn't, I didn't grow up in church at all. So I had never seen kind of what f- Christian family life looks like. Um, and they, as a, as a single guy, they invited me in to experience all of that. Uh, and there is something that was incredibly communal and life-giving and familial for me uh, in a really beautiful and profound way. And it also became a model for me uh, that has really informed much of our family life today. Uh, and so I, I think the, the beautiful part of that is, is that I think there are times the church can do this well. Uh, can say singles and married, uh, widowed and divorced can be in community together in Christ in a transformative way for everybody. Uh, and so I think that's, as that's part of a little bit of my backstory and a little bit of the hope I don't think we have for these conversations. All right, I've been talking long enough to get us started. Uh, What I want to do now is just uh, hear from you all kind of your uh, reflections and review from last week. Uh, Anything that you felt really kind of stood out to you, things that you've been wrestling with, uh, things that were encouraging or hopeful for you in last week's conversation uh, with Amber. And if anybody wants to give a quick recap for anybody that wasn't here, that would be helpful as well. And uh, Jacob's going to bring the mic around so we make sure we get these on the podcast. Uh, since you probably heard a lot of dead air if you were listening to the podcast uh, this past week. Anybody have anything, any reflections, thoughts from last week's conversations? <laughs> Jacob's going to do the long uh, walk run over to Jacob Delmeyer, everybody. <laughs> um, it's just, it's a reflection. Um, One thing that Amber said really stood out to me. She said, we as married people in the church need to do a better job of uh, talking about the difficulties of marriage. Um, I always thought, or I always felt that, like, once you were married, everything was hunky-dory, and you um, you were blessed by God, and everything was great. You know, and I really didn't see any or hear any kind of conversations in the church about, you know, marriage is really difficult. Yeah. Um, and you need to be ready for that difficulty. So I thought that was really helpful. Very good. Yeah. Anybody else thoughts from last week, things that you were encouraged or found helpful? Uh, yeah, so I was uh, saying to some people around me earlier that uh, I liked how she – Distinguished um, the difference of singleness being a gift versus people telling you you have to find joy in it. Hmm. Um, that it's okay for it to also be a gift and to still have that longing for marriage in the future. Yeah. Excellent. Be able to kind of capture like this is a multifaceted thing. Yeah. Um, I 
thought one of the most encouraging things, I think it was kind of the takeaway that she had was um, your singleness is the loudest gospel message that you can preach. And that's something I'd never heard before. So yeah. that was really encouraging. Yeah. Awesome. That was really beautiful, just thinking like gospel speaks through this area of our life. Anybody else, things that stood out to you or encouraged you? Uh, or maybe you're like, I'm not sure about this. Uh, you want to have more discussion around from last week? Don't be shy. <laughs> All right, there we go. A couple more. Becca and then Sarah in the back. it was neat that she started off with some of the myths of singleness and then she used some of the scriptures um, and she talked about in Genesis 2 where um, where God created a partner for Adam and that um, and so sometimes I think we've heard of singles that that means that there's one person out there for us and that we're all created to be married and, and she talked about that actually that verse is talking about living in community and so I thought that was a neat challenge for us that that means that we need to be making sure that we're involved in the church and in community. Yeah, very cool. And Sarah in the back with a boa. <laughs> Is it a boa, a scarf? It looks like a boa from here. <laughs> it looks nice. I like it. I like boas. <laughs> Who doesn't like a good boa? <laughs> you go, guy. Someone in here said, you know, um, it made a big difference in my single life when I realized how much God pursues me. Hmm. And that really spoke to me um, because I'm just like the rest of you. I want to be pursued. You know, I think that's a longing that we all have is to be pursued by someone, not in a negative sense. <laughs> <laughs> not sirens and lights behind you and that. <laughs> we, you know, that's stalking. <laughs> no, I don't think any of us want to be stalked, but I think we want to be pursued as um, being a loved child of God. Yeah. And God does that. And it was very encouraging to me that as I work on letting God love me, that God wants to love me. He is pursuing me actively. And that was extremely encouraging. And whoever it was, thank you. And I'd love to meet you. <laughs> <laughs> All right, anybody else? All right, I want to switch gears then really quickly and just grab the people kind of around you. And really quickly, just say, if, if someone were to, to say, what do you think about singleness in church history, um, what kind of things pop in your mind? It's, it's kind of a strange topic, um, but I'd just like to hear, when you think about a conversation on singleness in church history, what are the kinds of things that you think will be at the core or the center of the conversation? Take a couple minutes, introduce yourselves to the people around you, and then ask that question. All right, well, what are some of the things that, uh, that came up in your conversations? We'll just popcorn it really quickly around the room. What are some of the things that...
kind of pop into your mind when you think about singleness throughout the church's life together in history? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's this kind of fascinating sort of transition in church history where you see long periods of time where the, those who were considered pastors or priests uh, were generally single, and then some of those that we consider to be the spiritual elites, right, those who are committing themselves to li- living life together in a monastery or a convent are taking a vow of celibacy and lifelong singleness together. Uh, and yet now, in a lot of our contexts, uh, when we think about famous Christian leaders, uh, the vast majority of them are married in sort of, particularly in a Protestant context. Yeah, and thinking about kind of those shifts throughout church history. Awesome. What else kind of popped up for you guys in conversations? Yeah, Joanna. Yeah. Paul is smiling right now. (laughs) Yeah. So we have, yeah. (laughs) But there there is this place, I think, in particular, that not only in church history, but but especially at the beginning of the church's life, uh, that some of the foremost uh, leaders and influencers and thinkers uh, and writers around the early church were people who were single. Yeah. And Paul, kind of the paramount example uh, after Jesus, of course, <laughs> right? being the, the extreme example of uh, the influence of a single person. Yeah. That is a great question. The question was, do we know how many of the disciples were married and how many of them were single? Uh, it's not, it's interesting, it's not something that's talked about in the text, Right? Um, it's surprisingly not talked about in the text, uh, where you think like, oh, certainly this is going to be the topic of the conversation, because the church makes it the topic of everybody's conversation, so why wouldn't the Bible do the same thing? <laughs> um, <laughs> of course it would. Um, so a lot of church history says that they were likely all married, um, but it's kind of just... It's not, it's not discussed. There are other people that will say, no, they were likely, probably more likely all single because of their traveling around and, uh, and some of those kinds of things. So it's, it's in the literature, but it, the literature kind of varies a little bit kind of in the context of those things. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> He's got other issues later on, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. The fire may make that a little bit problematic. Yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah. Uh, he was mentioning, I'm, I'm repeating for the podcast, just came in listening, just the, the reality that there's so many stories in the Bible where we see characters who are either explicitly single or there's nothing mentioned about their married life or family, uh, and which would imply the fact that maybe it was likely that they were single. And so there are all of these examples, not only in church history, but in scripture itself, of influential and significant people of faith giving their lives um, for the sake of God's kingdom in the midst of their singleness. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> How dare he? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Very much. So she was mentioned this idea that we see a substantial change at the Protestant Reformation, particularly. Luther, you know, sort of protests, and one of the things that he does pretty quickly after um, that particular schism in the church's history is he gets married. Um, interestingly, if we go back to the church's first schism between the East and the West, between what we call now, we now call the Orthodox churches and the Catholic church, that one of the things that was part of that conversation, not probably, not necessarily the most significant thing, but one of the things that was part of it was the idea of clergy marriages, uh, and that was, ended up being part of the separation where those in the East uh, and the Orthodox churches took a different stance than the church in the West did. The Catholic church making it mandatory um, for clergy to be single and celibate um, unless they're transferring in from somewhere else. Um, so if, if you, if, like for example, if, if I decided to convert to Catholicism and go into uh, seminary and become ordained as a priest. I don't have to divorce my wife and renounce my children in order to do that. Um, but, <laughs> but there is. But for those who who uh, discern that call early in the in the Roman Catholic Church, that this is part of that uh, that call of that life together. But that wasn't mandatory for clergy until the like the 11th century, um, before it actually became mandatory. There was all sorts of conversations about it uh, for an extended period of time. And then goes from there. Joanna. Interesting. So Joanna was sharing that in her tradition um, that uh, single men were not allowed to go into the mission field, but single women were, um, and sort of seeing how that played itself out in kind of missionary movements, uh, which is a whole other conversation. That's a fascinating idea to think about how does this play out in missionary movements throughout history. Yeah, Any, anybody else, th anything that came up in your conversations? We should have had this before I prepared the talk. <laughs> I'm like, oh, yeah, that's... <laughs> Anybody else? Yeah, Mark. Yes. Yeah, yeah, the East has continued to... Yep. And he was saying that in the East, in the Orthodox churches, priests can still be married, uh, whereas we, do, we don't find that in the Catholic Church. 
So here, here are a few things that I'd like to share just kind of from a little bit of the reading that I did. And a lot of this actually probably relates more to the first couple centuries, the first five centuries of the church, before we start to see some of these other things change. When we get to the fourth, fifth century of the church, we see lots of changes starting to happen, again, around the 10th, 11th century, and then around the time of the Reformation, some major changes. But I think one of the things that we can see is, and this was already mentioned, is that so many early church leaders, Jesus, Paul, and others, were both single and celibate. Um, so single meaning not married, and celibate meaning refraining from sexual activity. Um, using the language uh, in that particular, uh, in, that per in that context. So this was a huge part of the early church, is that there were a number of people uh, who lived their life in this capacity. And it's continued to be th so through history. That as we mentioned in, this, in the scriptures, in the New Testament, in the early church, and throughout history, there have been people who have chosen to live their life this way and played a significant role in the church. I mean, you think about everybody from Mother Teresa to Tim Tebow. No, that, that one doesn't, that doesn't quite work. <laughs> Sorry, I, I had to get Tim Tebow in the conversation at some point, right? Um, the second thing that we see is that, in, in all actuality, the New Testament says surprisingly little about marriage, family, and children. It, it, those things are discussed, certainly, but if you think about uh, maybe, in particular, the amount of conversations that we have about these things in the church today versus the volume of material about them in the scriptures, uh, the scriptures actually say surprisingly little. I mean, we even noticed that as we were talking about the apostles. Like, nothing's really talked about in this as it relates to the text. The text seems to say this is a part of people's lives, but there are bigger issues at play um, in most of the writings of the New Testament. Um, than about marriage and family and children. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I, yes. So I, I would, the question is, why am I saying both single and celibate? Uh, I, I'm probably saying that just given our current context. Uh, that in our current context in our world today, single doesn't necessarily mean celibate. Um, that is the historic Christian perspective as it relates to that. Um, and that would be how I would define them as coming from a Christian point of view. Um, but knowing that all of us are coming from different places and different backgrounds. And so wanting to make it clear that, the, that these folks are both single and celibate. And particularly because there's been lots of popular literature that says Jesus wasn't. Right, Dan Brown and all of the you know weird like Da Vinci Code sorts of things, and Jesus's hidden offspring elsewhere, and uh, all of those kinds of things that suggest something otherwise. Um, uh, uh, yeah, <laughs> no, just simply trying to be really careful with my language. Um, yeah, Mark. Yes. Yeah, it was a particularly a vow of celibacy um, and then correspondingly singleness uh, from that capacity. Um, on the, the second side of that is the New Testament does specifically encourage singleness and celibacy, uh, both celibacy um, before marriage and, uh, and celibacy in the context of, of singleness. And so we find this really interesting, this sort of, uh, you know, uh, environment created within the text of the New Testament. 
uh, that there says little about marriage, family, and children. And when it does talk about singleness, it talks about it in an encouraging, supportive kind of capacity within the text. Kimberly. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, she was mentioning the idea that she's heard from various kind of people that one of the reasons why singleness was probably encouraged in the context of the New Testament was the reality of martyrdom for folks. That the church at various seasons in its life together experienced such extreme persecution that um, death because of someone's faith was a real possibility. And therefore, making a commitment to someone in marriage and having children was maybe not the best kind of decision to make in light of the fact that you may be killed from in light of your faith. I think that was part of it. I don't think it, it fully grasped the entirety of what's going on. And I'll say about that a little bit when we get to the theology section. I think it was one of the shaping factors, but I don't necessarily think it was the entire one uh, or maybe the most important. Uh, I think it, it was a... It was a practical reality of the time, but I'm not sure it was the only forming uh, aspect of, uh, of what was happening um, for people making that, that choice. Uh, but when we think about putting those things together, what we do see in the early church is that singleness became both an honorable and a sustainable way of life. Uh, and really, many people would say it became a sustainable way of life for the first time in history in the context of the early church that singleness became an honorable and sustainable way of life for the first time in history um, in a wide-scale sort of way in the context of the church. And in that capacity in the church, marriage and singleness were given equal status, uh, that there was not this sort of hierarchy within the early church around these conversations. Joanna, you raised your hand back there. Yes. And I would say that that would not, that would be definitely true in the Greco-Roman world. And it was more true of the church after its first four or 500 years than it was in its first 300 years. That if we think about the way the New Testament actually portrays women, and if you look at the sociological sort of uh, aspects and studies of things, uh, that women who became Christians experienced substantially more significance, substantially more power, substantially more freedom, substantially more honor and respect in the context of the church than they experienced outside of it. Um, and so the church really was sort of a transformative force uh, as it surrounded women. In fact, even throughout the New Testament, these things get obscured by King Jimmy uh, and his translations and some of the things afterwards because of what had happened, you know, in church history, unfortunately. But we do find people in the New Testament, women in the New Testament being named apostles. And so when you have a woman in the New Testament who's given the same title as Paul and, the, and Jesus' disciples, you have to stop and say, something else is going on here than maybe what would be experienced in church history. Uh, other women were considered deaconesses. There's all sorts of places where we see women holding substantial roles uh, of leadership within the context uh, of the church itself uh, and the ways in which, particularly for women, the church made singleness possible. 
uh, end made it uh, an actually an uh, an actually a choice for a woman who became widowed or divorced about whether or not she wanted to remarry. Where outside of the church, that wasn't a question. It was sort of mandated or required in that context. And I think some of these things kind of um, start to, to pop when we think about the Jewish and Greco-Roman background of some of these things. Uh, but this does um, see that we do see that leaders in the church were both married and single. Um, that there is uh, both, in particularly in the early church. When we think about how this contrasts with uh, what we see in the Jewish world and the Greco-Roman world, uh, we can think about all sorts of things as it relates to the Jewish world. Uh, but I think so many times as we think through um, the Old Testament, we see that there's this particular emphasis on, the, uh, on caring for widows in the Old Testament, right? That there's a sense that uh, if you became widowed um, in the Old Testament, you were, you were marginalized in some capacity, pushed to the margins and in danger. And so the, the Old Testament setting up all of these things to kind of uh, care for widows. But for the most part, what we see uh, in the Old Testament is that, uh, particularly when we're talking about women, um, is that we see this connection constantly with the men in their life. And that most of the access to resources, most of the access to significance, most of the access um, to justice and other things are connected to the men in their life. Um, even so much that we see that most people trace history um, or their lineage through males in their life, not through women, which is one of the really miraculous things about Je uh, Jesus' genealogy, including women in the context of the genealogy. You may have heard this is because it's showing how sinners get included into Jesus' genealogy. That's completely a wrong interpretation of that passage. The men in the Jesus' genealogy are bigger sinners than the women, um, <laughs> far and away. Um, instead, what we have is that all of, these, all of the women who are included in are Gentiles. Um, and so this is a way of kind of portraying that Jesus has come um, for all people, um, highlighting the significance of women in the gospel and, the high, and highlighting the role of Gentiles in the gospel. Um, but when we see that um, certain things within the, um, the Greco, or the, sorry, the, the Jewish world, we can think about things like uh, some of those laws that sort of unsettle us, like the leveret marriage. Um, so the idea of a leveret marriage would be something like um, if someone had gotten married, uh, let's say Sarah and I got married, we'll use us as an example, and I died before we had children. Uh, in the Old Testament context, then, my brother would then marry my wife. Um, <laughs> and as there, and, but their first offspring, if it happened to be a boy, would be actually be considered my son um, for, all, for all in terms of, like, land and inheritance and all of those kind of things so that my name could be continued on from there. Then if they had additional children, they'd be considered uh, their children rather than mine. Uh, but it wasn't an option um, for, it would not have been an option for her to continue to remain single at that point. It would have been saying, no, we need to actually bring you back into some sort of uh, connected capacity. And so we see that kind of aspect of singleness uh, being raised a little bit in the Old Testament. But we see maybe a more drastic when we think about the Greco-Roman world. So in the Greco-Roman world, we see that uh, the government preferred and rewarded men with three or more children. Uh, they received both political and economic breaks 
uh, at various points they were given actually free land. Uh, but uh, the government imposed sanctions on childless couples, unmarried women over 20, and unmarried women over, or unmarried men over 25, over 25. Widows who didn't remarry within two years of their husband passing were severely fined. Uh, and if they got remarried, then any inheritance that they had from their previous marriage now went to their new spouse. Uh, this is kind of what happened in the middle of those things. Uh, in addition that you had um, all throughout um, this sort of pressure kind of within the context of marriage, uh, that women throughout the Greco-Roman world were forced into uh, prepubescent and consummated marriages. Uh, the most women in the Greco-Roman world were married they were legally married at 12. Uh, many of them were married beforehand, but they were considered engaged uh, until they were 12, and they became a legal um, spouse in that particular case. Uh, so you have all of these kinds of things happening within the Greco-Roman world, sort of pressing toward marriage, pressing toward having children, um, and making it actually really difficult, if not impossible, um, to engage in a single life. But when we get to the church, what we find is that widows throughout church history take on this place of special respect. Uh, and we find throughout history that they're oftentimes encouraged to remain single after this has happened. They're particularly enabled within the Christian community to keep their husband's estate. So if something had happened, this did not have to go to somebody else. But they were actually able to keep it themselves. Uh, so their life as a, as a single person was sustained by the church and allowed them to actually to choose whether or not to marry or to remarry. And that began to kind of set even into play these other aspects of encouraging singleness for other people. Um, so all of this sort of began to shift around that particular time um, in seeing the ways that the church handled this differently than the Greco-Roman uh, world did from there. Thoughts on, on some of that? Any questions? I know I was kind of popping in and out because some things we already discussed in our conversations. Yeah, Katie. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. That's a great distinction, Katie. Yeah. 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 That's beautiful. That's better than anything I have on any of these slides. <laughs> um. <laughs> I think it, it, it's true that um, you see in the Greco-Roman context, in the Jewish context, that there is this, um, first of all, a primarily a communal way of thinking rather than an individual way of thinking, right? So throughout the scriptures, 
we have this huge shift that happens post the enlightenment and where we move to a very individualistic sense of self and a very individualistic sense of uh, significance and all of those things. But in uh, the Greco-Roman world and the Jewish world, you, you never thought of yourself as somehow disconnected from community. Um, though what you saw so often was that the pressure was that your access to community was through marriage, right? That that was the ways in which you stayed connected as you moved into adulthood. And what happens within the context of the church is the church does become this alternative family uh, in a way that allows connection that doesn't have to happen through marriage. Uh, and not just connection in terms of being able to be provided for, but actually a connection that leads to great significance uh, and a role within the context of that uh, community's life together. That's a Yes. Yep. Yeah, kind of pushing toward the future. Awesome. Any other thoughts kind of in the midst of all of those things? I'm going to skip one, one discussion there so we can make sure we cover the other slide. Okay. So it doesn't just happen in the Old Testament. Sometimes, <laughs> some, sometimes it happens in Oklahoma. <laughs> in 1902. That wasn't that long ago. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. All right. So I think when we, when we kind of put, start putting some of these things together, we can also start to see a particular kind of theology develop around, around singleness. Um, that one of the things that happens is that because of the viability of singleness in the context of the Christian community, marriage actually becomes voluntary for Christians. This is actually a kind of a huge shift in the life of the world, where oftentimes marriages were arranged, uh, where, as we saw in some other capacities, marriages were forced uh, on people. But because singleness became viable, marriage became voluntary, which began to reshape Christian perspectives on marriage. And it was actually singleness that shaped it, right? It was the kind of move in that direction. There's a famous theologian named Stanley Hauerwas who uh, makes the argument that within the Christian community that married people now have to justify their mode of life rather than vice versa. That within the way the church thinks about and makes singleness possible— and makes marriage voluntary, that marriage becomes kind of a different way of life for the Christian community and singleness the natural way of life for the Christian community. Uh, it's a really fascinating article, he has, or in his book, I think it's called um, uh, Community of Character, I think is the name of, of his book where he, he mentions this. But I think the bigger picture is, is that within the life of the church, we began to see uh, both marriage and singleness as different but equal Christian vocations. Um, that we began to think of these things in light of the call of God on people's lives. And what does it mean to live out life faithful to God? And then it began to shape the conversations in that perspective. Rather than just marriage is something that everybody does, there began to be a different conversation around the calling of God on the church and then how does that play itself out in 
singleness and marriage and began to shape the conversation in that way, in a way that was very different than what we had seen before, where marriage just became the natural thing that everybody did, and now became a different kind of conversation, where both singleness and marriage were seen as distinct callings from God, as ways in which to live out Christian faithfulness, and then both were distinctively shaped and reshaped by several theological ideas. And in terms of particularly singleness, I think we see, and this was kind of getting a little bit to what uh, um, Kimberly was mentioning before, that singleness, I think, became particularly sort of shaped around the ideas of mission, church, uh, eschatology or the future, and the idea of persecution. Uh, the first idea there, mission, is that the church, as we look at the New Testament, says that the church primarily grows through witness and conversion, not reproduction. So if we, if we think about the Great Commission to Adam and Eve, it's to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, i.e. get married, have sex, and have babies, um, as opposed to Jesus' Great Commission to the church is to go into all the world and make disciples. And nowhere in there is marriage mentioned in that context. So all of a sudden, the church began to think about its mission in a sense of particularly about proclaiming the gospel and making disciples that this is the primary calling of the church. Um, in addition to that, I think the church began to kind of think through this idea that there was no guarantee that your children would follow and cho would choose and follow Christ. So there was not a guarantee that biological reproduction also meant church growth in that sense, in the, in the movement of the gospel forward. Um, that that was not necessarily always going to happen, uh, that you may have children and those children may not choose Christ. Um, and so because of that, witness and conversion became these huge aspects of the church's life together. And so it began to say, how do we as people fill out God's mission or live out God's mission for us in the world? That was the primary calling. And then things like singleness and marriage were secondary to that. Uh, in which way can we most faithfully fill out this mission? The second thing is, is that we see throughout the New Testament and the early church is that the idea of the uh, church as family drastically shaped these conversations. Um, the, in the Old Testament, we find things like uh, that passage to um, the Adam is talking about after he meets Eve, that for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and cling to his wife. Uh, and then we find different things from Jesus and saying, for this reason, a person will leave their family and be united to Jesus and to the church. That we see, if anybody hates his mother or loves his mother and father more than me, and all of a sudden something starts to be reshaped in these conversations that says that the church is actually the central family in people's life. That this church supersedes the nuclear or the biological family for followers of Jesus which drastically then changes the way that we think about marriage and singleness. If this is our primary family, more so than what happens in our home, it's like this matters, but it matters as a part of something larger, that we are not simply a nuclear family, but that we are actually a family of all believers. So we see this throughout the church, this familial language being used amongst one another, brother and sister, and then the church becoming the primary context for community and connection. 
this is a huge shift. Um, I think some of the times we miss out on this because we think that oftentimes that church is maybe sort of like a voluntary association uh, that we, you know, sort of choose to come to which church that we want to, when we want to come to, simply for the, for the, the purpose of meeting our own spiritual needs. Uh, that's not the way the early church thought about it. <laughs> the church said, this is my family. Um, these are people that I'm deeply committed to in a, in a way that's even more profound than I'm, my commitment to my biological family. And so this idea of kind of the consumer ideas that we get around church were, were completely, were completely um, foreign, I think, to the early church. Instead, the church existed as sort of a contrast society, a contrast family to the rest of the world. So that drastically shaped these ideas. I think the second, the third thing that shaped it was this idea of eschatology, um, the idea of what's going to happen in the end. So the church believed that it was living between this age and the age to come. And there are certain passages in the New Testament where it makes it really clear, like Jesus could come back tomorrow, if not in two minutes. Um, so this idea of the imminent return of Jesus, that, that Jesus had ascended and Jesus was coming back, though we don't know when exactly it could be any moment. And there was a deep expectation within the early church uh, that we need to live prepared for the future. And we really need to live in light of the future here and now. And so if the future looks this way, then how do we as Christians live that way now in expectation of what is going to come? And that began to drastically reshape these things, of particularly around Jesus is saying that there will not be marriage in the new heaven and the new earth. I'm still wrestling with what all of that means. <laughs> um, but I think some of those things shaped those ideas. And then lastly, there was that reality of persecution. And I think when you combine all of those things together, what you start to find is a very vibrant perspective on what it means to be single for the sake of the gospel and the kingdom. And you can see a significance that extends maybe beyond what we saw in previous ages and times around um, just simply um, those other ideas. I want to do this one other slide, and then we'll just open up for conversation from there. Um, but the, the thing that we, I think, find in the midst of all of this, too, is that singleness was celebrated, and yet its sacrifices were not ignored, right? That there is a reality that there are things that are given up in the context of singleness. Uh, actually, in the early church, the primary sacrifice probably would have been seen as children, and for many, I think we can say that that's, that may be true for many people who uh, maybe the desire to be a parent is even greater than the desire to be a spouse. Um, but in the early church, uh, oftentimes the way that you thought in the ancient world is that your future was guaranteed by your children, uh, that your children carried on your name, your, your children carried on your legacy, and your children are the ones who cared for you when you got older. Right? There was so much about future that was wrapped up in kids. And that's why childlessness, particularly in the Old Testament, was such a, a kind of a critical thing, right? That there's this constant pressure around bearing children uh, and all sorts of drastic actions taken in order to have kids because uh, children were so much a part of the future. Uh, but we see, I think, in the early church is that singles actually witnessed the idea that our future is not guaranteed by our children, but our future is guaranteed by Christ and his community. That this is a, a, a huge shift and that singleness 
though it, there, there is the sacrifice of children, there's also this prophetic witness of saying that our future is not guaranteed by biological offspring and their ability to take care for us or to carry on our name or our legacy or our work. But instead, with our primary association being with Christ and the church, that it's our future is in his hands uh, and singleness witness to this. I think the second sacrifice and probably the one that's most kind of controversial and talked about in our time and culture uh, is the sacrifice of sex or physical intimacy. Uh, that singleness and celibacy went hand in hand uh, in the early church. Um, and we find that in our particular culture, uh, we have all sorts of conversations around sex, sexual identity, marital status, all of these kinds of things. But I think the challenge kind of in the midst of, of our conversations is that so often, I think maybe below the surface, is that we make sexual fulfillment an absolute value. Um, that sexual fulfillment... Uh, is really sort of the key to unlocking um, sort of all happiness in life, uh, is experiencing sexual fulfillment. Um, but I think what we find in the context of singleness and celibacy in the church is that celibate singles witness to the limits of sex. Uh, sex is certainly portrayed as a very powerful thing in the context of the scriptures. Uh, it has the ability to take two people and make them mysteriously one, has the capacity to reproduce children in the image and likeness of Jesus, or in the image and likeness of God, whereas God creates the first people, he then empowers people to create additional people, to procreate. Um, so there is, a, there is a power and an intimacy um, to sex, but sex has its extreme limits. Um, it, it's not the kind of thing that fills up every broken and empty space in our lives. Um, sex in and of itself, though powerful, is not sort of like this doorway into some greater kind of life or even uh, in the way the scriptures talk about, not even a, a way into a greater kind of love. Uh, when the scriptures talk about a greater love, what do they talk about? Jesus says that no one has greater love than this, but to lay down a life for a friend that there's something about the scriptures that presents something about love that extends well beyond this idea of physical intimacy. And I think the other sacrifice um, that we see in the midst of these things is the, maybe the sacrifice of a spouse or the kind of relational intimacy that we see potential in marriage. Uh, and yet I think then singles then witness this idea that we need extended community. Even in the context of marriages, um, the, your spouse is not the sole person in your life. Uh, there are friends in my wife's life who are able to speak to her and care for her and celebrate her and champion her and call things out of her that I can't do. I, her relational sort of connectedness and intimacy extends well beyond our marriage. Our physical sexual intimacy is restrained between the two of us. But there is this great need, and I think sometimes we think that, oh, if we're married, then we'll find that all of our relational needs are met. In the same way, sometimes we think that all of our physical sexual needs are met, and that's just simply not the case. Um, that there are some of those things that are met, right? That people's experience of sex and marriage is varied. 
and it's all over the board. Um, and people's relational experience in marriage is all over the board. But I think what we can say about all marriages is that really strong and healthy marriages, the relationships extend beyond them. Um, we can't expect any one person to fulfill all of these kinds of things in our life. So singleness witnesses, I think, to our need for extended community beyond nuclear family. All right, so I've said a whole lot in the midst of all of those, those kinds of things. Um, thoughts, questions, comments? I know we've been kind of doing a little bit of interaction as we've been going on. Um, but what are, what are your thoughts as we look at some of these kinds of things? I'm just wondering, is this turned on? There you yeah. go. Okay. Um, in the, in First Timothy and Titus, um, the role of eldership and overseer is tied to those that have children and are raising them well. So I'm just wondering what, Yeah. like, it's, it's just a difficult no. passage in general, and, like, I'm not asking, it, like, a No, whole it time, is a difficult passage. Like, what, what is, yeah. um, I mean, and Paul's, like, Paul and Jesus are the only ones that are super clear that they were single. Right. Um, so what is the role of the single in church leadership? Yeah. So the, the, those passages talking about like an elder must be the husband of one wife. I think interestingly, as you look at those passages, um, it's, I think what they're suggesting is that if the person is married, they can have only one spouse. I don't think it actually precludes people from being single. I think it precludes this idea of multiple marriages or multiple spouses in the context of the church. It doesn't explicitly say they have to be married. It says that if they are married, they can have only one spouse. Uh, and so I think that's a better way of understanding those passages uh, is to be able to say these do not uh, exclude single people from church leadership. Instead, they exclude people who are trying to have you know, multiple marriages <laughs> from church leadership, which we can probably all say is probably a good idea. Other thoughts, questions, things that come up? Yeah, Lindsay. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> Jacob, you need some, like, roller skates me? to get around. So um, I thought it was interesting that you contrasted the early church community and the Greco-Roman communities and how in the, in the early church community, women in particular were given status that they weren't given in the secular community, let's say. And in addition, of course, singles, singlehood was a, was a choice mm -hmm. as um, you know, kind of a way to live your life for the most yeah. part. So I'm wondering, I just think it's ironic. <laughs> because it's heartbreaking. It, it, well, it, it's, it's heartbreaking to, to me that, you know, 2,000 years later, I think we're in a very different place. Mm -hmm. um, we're in the city where there's a lot of Christian ministries, in particular, um, like something like Focus on the Family, that I think in some way elevates marriage and family as the vocation you should be in if you are um, a Christian. And so I'm just curious, like, how did we get here? That's a big question. But I just think it's so ironic that we've actually – I think regress yes progress and in, in in society and as a whole yeah the christian community is not looked on as a community that um elevates the status of women or um recognizes and respects vocational choice yeah no you're exactly right Lindsay. and that i mean that's probably a, a sunday school class we need to do in the spring for two or three weeks of talking about the history of women in the church um and some of those, <laughs> some of those, <laughs> some of those, those conversations. 
Uh, I think we, do, we see some really drastic changes happening post-Constantine. So after the church sort of moves from this marginalized, powerless community uh, and persecuted community within the, within the life of the Greco-Roman Empire and moves to the center, um, it begins to adopt some of the thoughts and practices and ideas from the surrounding culture. Uh, and you begin to see a kind of a shift at that point. Uh, that shift takes off the longer the church goes on. Uh, and gets to a point, I think, particularly by the time we get to the 19th century, um, that with the rise of evangelicalism, uh, in particular, that there becomes um, the uh, particular ways of interpreting passages um, that I think actually can and should be interpreted differently that begin to actually make this worse. Um, And so rather than uh, celebrating and encouraging both singles and women in the ways in which they can bear witness to the gospel in and through their lives, there become all of these conversations kind of centered around, um, uh, these are loaded terms, okay, that need more time to unpack than we have time today. But the conversations become primarily about things like submission and covering, right? Uh, and rather than about maybe some other things, and interpreting those in particular ways that I don't think they would have been understood in the early church. Uh, I think the early church would have understood them quite differently. Uh, And just one example, like the passage where in Corinthians where Paul is talking about how women shouldn't speak in church. If you look at the rest of Corinthians, there's various times that women are speaking in church. And so in that letter, we have to figure out, okay, why is this here? And it's actually likely that Paul is quoting the Corinthians back to them. That this isn't Paul uh, recommending a practice. This is Paul saying what they're saying and then coming and combating it. Um, and so there's all different ways of interpreting those passages in the context I think are better. But that's just one example of saying Paul, Paul's making opportunities for women to speak all over the place. Uh, he is naming women in his letters. He refers to women as deacons and apostles. And so this passage is actually the outlier, not, but we, we've gone and made a whole theology around it. Uh, we've taken an outlier passage and made it the central passage. And I think the church has done that frequently in history. Yeah. I know that's a really load. I'm like throwing a bomb out in the middle of the room and going, oh, here we go. <laughs> Isaiah 54, Uh, this was really encouraging, just kind of um, says, you know, about singleness and women and children, just saying that, you know, sing, O barren one who did not bear, break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor, for the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. So I I just feel like that celebrates singleness in that way, and just like, okay, so we don't have our own children, but given people in our lives children to really pour into. Yeah. So I've, I've always found that. Interesting. Yeah, that's incredibly encouraging. It, and I think particularly at various points in church history, there's been a great celebration of that, recognizing that um, there's a, a sh- in, a sh- in a shared life of a community uh, that you have influence on people's children um, in ways that uh, make you aunts and uncles, right? Uh, and make all of us aunts and uncles in other people's lives uh, and their children. So we can, and that was uh, a huge part of that community that I was a part of in that church in Tulsa, um, is that being around that family for eight to ten years, all of the kids call me uncle. They still call me uncle to this day uh, and have a close affinity 
um, with those kids. And I expect the oldest one's getting married in January. We're hoping to be able to come back. And they were in our wedding. You know, and then there's just, I, I am, I mean, I, I have deep love and affection uh, for those kids as if they're part of my own family. Yeah. All right, we have time for a couple more. Yeah. Sven. Hey. Good so, to see you, man. Uh, I feel like there's a, a couple groups that are definitely being spoken to in this. There's people who are married. There's people who are single and are of kind of a single vocation. Mm-hmm. But I feel like there's another group that's, that's growing in our culture that wasn't as represented in the culture that the Bible was written in, which is people who are single but want to be married, yeah. especially people who, because of our culture, have kind of come out of unhealthy relationships. Hmm. Somebody who's like, you know, maybe in their early 20s, they tried really, really hard uh, in, a, in a relationship that, failed not because of, you know, like sin, but because of psychology. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> because of life. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so now, uh, now, I mean, just to use myself as an example, what if, what do you have to say to the 31-year-old who's got a, you know, got a gym membership and a job and doesn't want to <laughs> stay ma- uh, unmarried, but also doesn't want to let this time just be wasted? Yeah. No, that is... Uh, yeah, I mean, you're right. There is, there is much less said kind of in the New Testament and the early church in that, in that particular capacity. Uh, I think it was probably in that, in that time period easier maybe to get married if you wanted to uh, than maybe what we find in experience in our culture today where there's numerous kind of complications uh, ar- around uh, that topic and, uh, and those, those particular issues. Um, and so much of this was definitely addressed to this. So thanks for bringing that to my attention, Sven. I appreciate that. Um, I think, I mean, Amber said, I think, a whole lot more uh, about that last week. And Lisa will share a whole lot more about it on Saturday at the, uh, at the event in the middle of those things. But I'm, I'm wondering, kind of in the middle of all of that, um, if, if there is, if the invitation is to continue to say, to think through the lens of, singleness kind of around these things um, without denying the fact that marriage is, is the desire and to continue to both to both uh, to, to prayerfully pursue that as well as actively you know relationally um, pursue that in various ways which is a risk right in, a, in any context of being able to say okay and you know initiating a date or any of those kinds of things is a, is a particular kind of risk in our culture um, and saying how do we we go in that in that kind of space. Um, so I think there's maybe you know particular things that we can think about in life together um, that makes yeah. Oh my my thing yeah that doesn't that doesn't that doesn't help. Um, there we go. Um, that make that a particular um, maybe a sustainable kind of uh, pursuit, right? I think sometimes. What, what tends to happen is that the unfulfilled desire becomes overwhelming and all-consuming in our life. Um, and I think the invitation of the church is into a life of community, um, even when marriage hasn't happened. And oftentimes it's, it's in the life of that community that maybe we, we hope and trust that, that God begins to do something. Not that that's a guarantee um, within the middle of those things. Uh, I'm, I'm hoping that Lisa will be able to share a whole lot more 
kind of about that on Saturday. I'm not sure my answers are all helpful. <laughs> uh, other than um, I think that is, it is a, a particularly unique uh, way, uh, it's, a, it's a unique experience of singleness, right, in our, in, our, in our culture that I don't think we found in the early church. Um, you know, Paul's basic instructions was like, hey, don't get married, but, if, you know, if you're burning with passion, then go and get married, as if it's that easy, right? <laughs> uh, and I think in that time and place, it, it was. And in our culture, it's become quite complicated. Some in great ways because of the voluntariness of marriage, Marriage became something that people chose rather than something that was arranged. Um, and then has its own kind of unique, unique life that spins out of that. I'm not sure that was all that helpful, but <laughs> yeah, Sarah. Acknowledging that I don't want to discourage any of you, um, but we were talking just in our small group and in our context, and, and I remember people saying these things, and I thought, oh, that's another whole thing. But I would encourage you to look at yourself in the context of wanting to be married. We know that now we can look back and say there were many, many times when we wanted to be married, but we were doing it. So, in light of that, being my experience, I would encourage you as young people looking to be married to really seriously look at yourself, <laughs> get, get with God and check it out. That, 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 that would be for sure. Just because uh, you, may be, you may be doing this and not know it is all I'm saying. Yeah, thanks, Sarah. Yeah, I, th I mean, I think that that's certainly uh, one of the possibilities. I think we, we want to be really careful to say that, that that's not guaranteed what's happening, right? That there are, there can be a multiple reasons that we find ourselves with an unfulfilled desire. Um, and I think one of the invitations to the, from the church is how in the midst of unfulfilled desire um, do we continue to find a way to live faithfully uh, without denying the fact that we have that desire in, in the midst of us. Uh, and some of that may be the process of God continuing to heal us and to shape us and to form us in, uh, in, distinctive, in distinctive ways. I think that's true for all of our lives and all of our seasons, that that work of uh, God in us is, is never quite fully done. Um, but it's a process of being made into Christ-likeness at every point in time. Um, I think, you know, just there is, I think, a greater challenge probably now um, in that context than, than possibly there's ever been in the, in the life and history of the church. Um, as, I th as I think about the unique challenges of the disintegration of community in the life of our country, you know, and maybe it's just even our time. There was a book written several years ago um, by a guy named Robert Putnam called Bowling Alone and talking about the decline of third spaces in, uh, in the United States, that there was this time period where people were all engaged in bowling, you know, bowling leagues and volleyball leagues and the, 
uh, Lions Club and all, you know, all of these other kinds of uh, things. And I think life was very much communally oriented. Um, and so it created all sorts of overlap of relationships and networks um, and sort of, uh, and, and connections that oftentimes be turned into dating relationships and, uh, and eventually into marriage. And I think now we live such disconnected lives um, that our lives are, are pretty isolated oftentimes to our workspace, our second space, and our home. Um, church becomes possibly the only kind of thriving third space left um, in our culture. Uh, and yet, even that has become something that's been pushed to the margins for many of us. Um, the av- like the most committed church goers statistically now attend church two times a month. Uh, where in like the 50s and 60s, the most committed churchgoers attended church two to three times a week. Uh, and so you think about the life of a, of, a, of a Christian community that's gathering together two to three times a week all together versus a sense of, oh, every, you know, couple weeks I gather with the church. Um, it makes the possibility of building friendships and community and networking, all of those kind of things that happen in the fabric and life of a church, much more challenging. Um, and so you, we live in these sort of like filled, high-paced, fast lives uh, that are pressed to the margins. Uh, and then we have these desires. And oftentimes, the only way that uh, we can find to take a step toward that, and I think that's where that great risk comes in, is the, oh, I met somebody this one time in this one space, and so I'm going to take the risk of asking them out, knowing I have no clue what's going, what's going on. We barely know each other. Uh, and I think a lot of the online dating kind of aspects things end up trying to fulfill that space for us. Um, and in many ways, very beautifully and, and helpfully for many people, and sometimes really painfully for others, right? I mean, I think we have to acknowledge that not everybody's experience of online dating is even the same. Right? So I, I know people who, you know, met and married during greet time at church um, and met their spouse online and got married. And other people whose experiences of online dating was nothing but painful and hurtful. Um, and so I think all of those things kind of complicate that. Um, the likelihood of meeting other single people who share same values and same desires is harder now than I think maybe at any point in history, which complicates some of, the, I think, that challenge too. Yeah, Mark. In some cases, I mean, we've got we as singles, we got to remember that there are married people that we see out there, and they're terrible. <laughs> you know, they're yeah. not. You know, because they're married, they're not perfect. Mm-hmm. You know, and we can beat ourselves up and tear ourselves up daily about this, and we have to remember that. Yeah. Yeah, it's very, it's very much so. I mean, it, it is, it's a, a potential, like we should all, but I think there's always the invitation for us to do self-reflection and introspection, whether we're single, we're married, whether we're divorced, we're widowed, whether we're, uh, we have kids or we don't have kids, we're employed or not employed. I mean, whatever we find ourselves in, the invitation of the Lord is into the reflective life of the soul. And uh, always saying, okay, Lord, what are you doing right now? are you shaping and changing and transforming me in, in unique and specific ways? All right, got time for one more, and then I'm going to close it up, and then I'll hang around for a while to answer additional questions. Anybody else?
<laughs> I wanted to pile on with what she had to say about looking at ourselves. I think some of the grappling is when I do look at myself, I find myself not fully refined. So you mentioned in response to that, and I thought you kind of got it pretty well. <laughs> yeah. We're going through this refinement of getting closer and closer to Christ. So when we do look at ourselves, we're not actually fully complete. So then how do we match with other people? I, I don't feel a pressure. Mm -hmm. I feel a I want to refine myself more. So then when do you say I'm a sinner, I'm going to be okay with the trade-offs, accept trade-offs, and go from there? Because I do find when I do find myself closer to the Lord, the people that come into my life are much more closer to the Lord. <laughs> yeah, I, I think there's, uh, I, I think what I was trying to strike in the midst of the conversation is I think there's a really delicate balance here. Um, I, I think it, it, we have to be careful um, to, to, to make large claims on any side of the conversation, right? That the, the, to, to say that the reason that so-and-so is not married is because of this, or the reason that so-and-so's desire is not filled is because of this. I never think it's that simple. Um, those things may be a part of the conversation, and yet they may not be. <laughs> um, and so I think there's, there's particular places that we, we say, okay, what does all of this look like? Um, but I think what, what you were getting at, what's your name, by the way? Aaron. What you're getting at in the midst of that is that regardless of what's where we find ourselves, that the invitation is into a deep life of faith with Christ, um, to a deep abiding intimacy with him. And as we draw closer to him, whether we're single or married or whatever place that we find ourselves in, what begins to happen is that we begin to look more and more and more and more like him, right? And that that does have that, that in and of itself begins to bear fruit in our life. Um, in s but there's no guarantee that that fruit is going to be the fulfillment of this desire to be married. Um, but there is a sense that um, when we do draw near to the Lord, one of the things that does happen is kind of same thing when we draw near to the life of the church. The closer that we are to the center of the life of the church, the more likely that we're meeting other people, networking, and finding the kind of community talked about here. If we live out on the margins of the church, we're less likely to find the kind of vibrant community described in the text. Um, and so it's that saying, okay, well, how is it in the midst of the life that I find myself in do I continue to draw close to Christ and his family and trust him with um, the things that are outside of my control? And I think that's true for both married and, and singles in the midst of that. I hope I'm saying that well, that you hear my heart in the middle of uh, all those things, because I, I know these are, like, hard and, and, so, and sometimes painful conversations, right? And, again, what we're, we're hoping to say is trying to create a safe space for conversations to happen uh, and to say, okay, what does it mean for us as a church? What does it mean for us as single people to find uh, the kind of life and invitation into community that we find in, um, from Christ in the church? At the same time, without denying our desire, without saying that, uh, you know, saying we have to, like, push this away or let this go, 
but at the same time maybe inviting discernment about, well, maybe this is a season or a calling to a life of, of singleness um, for a particular place in time and being able to celebrate and encourage that rather than treating it as always a problem to be fixed. Um, but, with, but not going, swinging the other dimension and, you know, sort of isolating folks who find themselves single but do want to get married. Um, of saying that we're trying to talk through all of the issues in a very uh, tender way. <laughs> and if I have not done that at all today, please forgive me. Um, I'd love to talk to you more about it. Let me pray so we can uh, let you go on and then we continue conversations uh, for those who can stay. Gracious Father, thank you that um, you invite us first and foremost into a life of relationship with you. And that it's in solidarity with you, intimacy with you, that we find you giving us the ability to draw close to one another. Uh, that it's first and foremost in and through our love for you and your love for us that we're given the ability to be able to connect in healthy, life-giving uh, ways with one another. And we pray that you would help all of us to continue to shape our lives around your mission, uh, around your family, around uh, your intended future, uh, and empower us to live in light of that today. And as we come into the room with all kinds of thoughts and fears and desires and hopes and dreams, we take and we trust them all to you. We know that you, you love us. You are a father who hears and sees uh, both the cries and the joys of our hearts and is able to hold them both well. And so I draw near to all of us in the places we find ourselves and bring us the kind of healing and hope that only you can provide. We love you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, everybody. Appreciate you so much. We'll see you back here next week if you're able to make it, or maybe on Saturday at the event. You can register online at newlifechurch.org.